What's your Everest? You know, the highest mountain on earth, a metaphor for a goal that is so big that it scares you to even speak it out loud. That goal that takes more than a season, a year, or maybe takes a lifetime to even accomplish. I'm Colleen Rue, the voice of the mountain and your host as we meet inspiring individuals who know what it's like to set big goals and how to accomplish them. Welcome to My Everest, a 29029 podcast. A unique aspect of 29029 events is coaching. When you commit to climbing 29,029 feet, we have coaching staff that make sure that you have all the tools and the training that you need to achieve your goal. Each registered participant is provided with a guided 20-week training plan and a bi-weekly group coaching call that's all created and hosted by our head coach, Brent Peace. It's not just the mountain. It's what it takes to get to it and up it. My mountain was Ironman for just trying to figure it out and, and becoming so inspired by the sport that I changed careers. I, I tell people I quit a lot of jobs to become an uh, endurance coach. You can hear Coach Brenton's story and more about his passion for coaching back in episode seven. As the years have gone by, Coach Brent has grown the 29029 coaching staff to include some of the best coaches and athletes in the business. Participants of 29029 receive training on breathwork, mindset, nutrition, gear, strategy, everything they need to accomplish their goals. Our coaches have hiked miles and miles side by side with hundreds of individuals as they achieved heights they never thought possible. In today's episode, we introduce you to one of our coaches, Coach Chris Hout. If you've met him or heard him speak, his soft, kind manner has probably drilled right through your heart, opening you to greater clarity and understanding for who we become through endurance sport. Though Chris has helped propel hundreds of people to the top of the 29029 mountains, what do we really know about Coach Chris? He was a former Olympic swimmer, a world-class triathlete, but was he always this Chris we've met on the mountain? Full of myself, everything goes my way self, the cocky, competitive, stomp your feet and be real loud self took the challenge. The answers might surprise you, and the things that shaped Chris into the man and coach he is today just might help you shape yourself into becoming your best version yet. This is a two-part episode of the 29029 podcast about Coach Chris Hout. I feel like we see Coach Chris on the mountain all the time. We hear from Coach Chris all the time, but I don't feel like we really know who you are. You know, there's a um, there's always been a reason for that. Like I've always been sort of a separate private person. Sure. And so therefore, it's always been sort of this space of like, you know, so many former lives that it's like, it's so interesting. It's, it's interesting how this all develops, who we are today versus who we were 10 years ago versus 20 years ago oh, and yeah. so forth. So it's this whole game. It's interesting because I feel like that as well. It, there's been so many iterations of Colleen throughout mm -hmm. my life. And mm -hmm. it's interesting to see how those develop and how they get there and then where they land. I would love if you would kind of share maybe who Chris is and how you came to be Coach Chris and not necessarily how you came to 29029, but like what 
shaped your philosophies? Because I think all of our experiences in life shape our philosophies of, of who we become and what we share with the world and what we put out there and how it gets you to this moment. You're a former Olympic swimmer. You're a former yeah. elite triathlete. When did you get into like swimming? Was that something you did when you were a child? Were you always in sports? How did that happen for you? Yeah, my story is really uh, linear like that when it comes to swimming. And uh, But to start the story is my older brother, seven and a half years older than me. He was already swimming. And my parents were like, listen, we're not driving to the pool for just one kid. You're getting in two. At like two and a half, three, I was already at the organized swim workouts wow. of my brother because he's right at this time, he's 10. And that's sort of the age when kids sort of swim and do their thing. Like I was tagging along and that started my swimming. So I started very young and I was always around friends of my brothers and that group that were already established swimmers. So I was already thrown into a mix of people who already were good swimmers. And then we moved to Europe. I'm a dual citizen. So I'm a citizen of Germany and the United States. I was born here, but my parents are German. They remain German. They're green card citizens. Were your parents athletes at all? My dad would be offended if I um, said no. He was a different type of a, he was a goalie. Okay. So um, first, uh, quite good in soccer, but then in Germany and in a lot of uh, European countries and Asia, you have men's field hockey. Mm -hmm. And the German uh, field hockey team was quite good. Um, very good, actually, one of the best. And he was one of the backup national team goalies for the German, West German field hockey team. That's sort of my like twist to say, yeah, he was an elite athlete, but <laughs> I keep giving him a hard time. I'm like, dad, you were not, you sit around in a goal. Oh, that's funny. Well, I just, I know some other people who are dual German citizens and are endurance athletes. And it seems like the German culture really fosters athletic mm -hmm. in especially where are you endurance. going with this Colleen? Well, no, I just think it's interesting that we love discipline. Yeah. And we love suffering. It's why Germans win the Ironman and Kona. Yeah. <laughs> and they took over the sport because it, it just aligns with their DNA so well. Um, like put me into a hard, difficult situation where I'm in my mind for 10 hours. Sweet. Sign me up. Right. I feel like it comes with that German blood that you have. It's just you're they just have a way of being able to do that. So I, I think that's really interesting where, you know, your parents are. First gen, I guess your first generation I'm here first in, generation in the United States. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. that's, you're coming from that, that very German culture that has created and produced so many incredible endurance athletes. So, yeah. And anybody who knows my mom knows that I come from a very <laughs> strict, not strict in that it's harsh, but very like, this is just the way things are done. Right. Well, there was just that expectation. And so yeah. I think of swimming as well. Swimming is a very, very disciplined sport and it's a very quiet, it's a very lonely sport. It's even at the high school level, it requires quite a level of training. There's something mind bending about staring at a black line for five hours a day through your youth. <laughs> Did you like that? Was it something you enjoyed? You kind of found like that was a rhythm that you liked? No, I don't know. Um, I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it. I'm just saying that I didn't know any better. It was my life. Um, again, my brother and my, my friends then and my social network, that's sort of where I went. 
um, and did my thing. Now I left uh, to go to boarding school when I was 10 years old. So I got kicked out of the house pretty young. All these things. Well, were you in Germany at this time or were you in the United States? No, parents were in the United States and my brother and my dad and my uncle and my grandfather all went to this one boarding school, but they went when they were 16. And I was a little rambunctious, if you would want to say that as a kid. And my parents were just like, you know what, you're out. You're going at 10 already. Um, It'll do you good. And they also wanted me to grow up speaking fluent German and just the customs and cultures. And my brother had that opportunity. And um, not just because of his boarding school when he was 16, but just because we were there at that time living in this back and forth between Germany and the United States. Then I didn't swim for about a year and a half um, because, man, boarding school was awesome. You know, freedoms, Europe, parents in the United States. My brother, who is now at this time 18, was my guardian um, and lived an hour and a half train ride away in Munich. I was north of Munich. Um, And so on the weekends, I would see him and he would sign some sort of paperwork, always saying that I was there and school grades and stuff like that, but, and also the trouble I got in. But again, those freedoms, I didn't want to swim. I just sort of, well, you were a kid around. Yeah. I was a kid. I was too young to really do anything really stupid. Right. You give me a few years later, I would probably been, um, you know, not making very smart choices, but I definitely was too curious to just go to a pool every day with people I didn't know, right? This is now a new environment. I lost my friends. I lost that environment. I lost that network, that social network. So, um, but then I discovered swimming again on the weekends down with my brother. He was still swimming. Okay. So he had continued swimming and brought you back to the pool. And he's like, there's this great swim team here. I want you to meet these kids and -and so-and-so. And those became my best friends. And were you a a good swimmer at that point? Were you somebody who the coaches were looking at saying, hey, this kid's talented? No. (laughs) (laughs) You were just a run-of-the-mill 11-year-old? This is is the theme throughout my life is that I'm not very good. It's just that I stuck with it long enough or that I sort of am always sort of the second, third best person in the area. Now, if you choose the right area, that gets you somewhere. Right. But um, no, I had stopped. So when you stop when you're 10 or nine and a half, 10, and then return, like when you're almost 12, it's a big gap in the development and just sort of how kids are swimming, especially in Germany, or even in the United States at that age. So I had to sort of start from scratch, but I loved it. And I swam on my own at boarding school. I started swimming more and more and things started clicking so that when I was 16, then I switched boarding schools. I went more to a swim school. Okay. You got to compete. Yeah. yeah. Well, but also I represented the school. It was more like here you have it in academies where let's say you're a really good basketball player before you go to college, you go to an academy, you know, you get good grades, but you're playing high level basketball all the time. And so it's very similar in the Germans Olympic system. This is the development system in West Germany. They already had chosen certain swimmers and certain age groups and set up these academies. And I went to one of those schools for boarding school. And so when did you graduate from this boarding school? Um, When I was 18, actually would have been 19 because we go to school longer in Germany. We do a 13th class. That's why Um, you guys are so smart. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't give us that much credit, but um, yeah, so I must've been 19. Yeah. Because I came here for college when I was 19 
when did you get into the Olympic level, the Olympic competition of swimming? Was that prior to leaving Germany? Were you swimming for the oh, German no. team or were you here no. in the United States? No, I was, I was, again, I was B level. So I wasn't one of those identified and then put into the system. I was, uh, I was good and I was a hard worker, you know, the typical cliche comment, Hey, he's a hard worker. We're not sure yet. And then I swam. I mean, I was at uh, junior European championships, right? Things like that were, um, I didn't place or anything, but I was selected because somebody else was sick <laughs> and they needed to fill a team. Right? So it's, and like at 18, 19, you're fully developed as a, as a young man. So a lot of my friends or swimmer friends were already on the junior national team or they were going to national team events or, or um, World Cup events and so forth in the swimming world. There's all kinds of different avenues. So I wasn't. And uh, I walked on, not walked on, I got somewhat of a scholarship at Michigan for, uh, what was it, books and tuition. Okay. So that was yeah. paying a little bit of that. It was paying a little, little yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, and I swam for a coach there who revolutionized the swimming sport. Board, um, a guy named Joseph Nagy, and he invented a different type of breaststroke. But then his wife got a job at the World Bank in Washington, D.C. And so it's now my sophomore year, and my coach, who's developing me into a really good swimmer, now I'm on the radar for the German team. And I have, when I go back to Germany for short course nationals and summer meets, they're like, whoa, what happened here? Well, he, he moves. He leaves Michigan. And I'm like, so you lose what? your coach. Yeah. I, mean. I lost my coach and I, the head coach had no interest in me. He's like, all right, whatever. Um, Joseph's tolerated you, but you know, I didn't really recruit you. I don't really have much to do with you. Um, and you're so just, left. you're a breaststroker at this point. No, I'm an I am Okay. he's changed okay. my, I am and my mindset. He was my he, <laughs> little story about him. He would, he was, he would mess with you mentally. He was a good Eastern European coach, like just the type who would never, ever compliment you. And on a side note, we were at the 92 Olympic games and one of the guys in our group. So I continued with him to you know, give you a little more details on the story, but there's like eight of us in Barcelona and three of them got medals that from this original group, one got the world record, Mike, Mike Barrowman, um, and won a gold medal. And then uh, another in our group, Sergio Lopez, who's now one of the premier swim coaches in the country, he got the bronze medal. And we're on Las Ramblas in Barcelona, celebrating after that one of our swimmers and our, and our close group that trained together every day for two years, um, won a gold medal. And not a single compliment from Joseph. Coach wasn't going to say anything. He wasn't anything. And so then finally we're sitting at a table and we're like, Mike, where's the medal? Let's, you know, it's after the awards. And he's like, I don't got it. Joseph over there has it. We had a nickname for him, Yoshi. And um, he still doesn't break a smile. He still doesn't say anything. We're like, what is up with you? Come on, let go a little bit. And he pulls his shirt up. He's wearing the gold medal <laughs> of Mike under his shirt. And he's, he smiles and goes, yeah today was not such a bad day. Oh, my <laughs> that's it. Goodness. That's a compliment. That was the compliment. That's that all you it. guys got in your entire that's career. <laughs> yeah. So that's sort of, but he shaped me in, um, in a lot of ways and in, in toughness and mindset and how to approach coaching and, uh, just had a real big impact on me. I moved with him to DC. 
swam in DC with all these guys. We had an Olympic, little Olympic group in DC, and that propelled my swimming career. I mean, had I not swam with him, I would have stayed a walk on at Michigan. So did you, not... did you finish at Michigan? Did you graduate from Michigan? Where did no. you graduate from? Um, American D- University in DC. In DC, okay. Yeah, yeah. So you transferred So we had there. a swim club there, Rick, um, Rick Curl, Curl Burke Swim Club created a, a little hotbed of swimmers. I mean, a, a gold medalist galore, Tom Dolan, Mike Barrowman, Sergio Lopez, Mark Henderson. I mean, they had like just a 10-year window of swimmers. It was all started by this group of Joseph. Wow. And so it was great. Yeah. And so that's, that's swimming for me. That was, he was my chapter. He, he made me better than I ever thought I could be. Um, I continued on after college for two, three more years of swimming, thinking I would be better for the 96 games, but I wasn't, it was a classic case of not hanging on too long. I believed I still had some potential, but it wasn't it. In hindsight, if there's something I would change, I would probably have changed that trajectory a little bit. Left Um, a little sooner from that and moved on a little bit sooner. Exactly. Yeah. So I was an alternate in 96. I didn't even get to swim. I got to warm up, but I never got to compete. Right. Um, Because some of the big teams get to have an alternate if somebody's sick or um, can swim a variety of events. And I was a 400 IM or so I swam a, a variety of events. And yeah, that was how swimming ended. But in 96, I also did my first triathlon. So 96 was Atlanta. Yep. So Barcelona, 92, Atlanta, 96. You Mm -hmm. do, you're in, how do you get introduced to triathlon? I think every triathlete has that story where they come from one of the disciplines and somebody's like, hey, you should do these other two sports. Very similar, very similar for me. Um, My swim coach at American was doing them or sort of had done one or two up in New Jersey and was like, Hey, you should try this triathlon thing. And I was like, all right, well, sounds fun. Like, sounds like something. Cause I liked long distance swimming anyway. I was Did you run or bike before this? Um, a little bit of running, but never biked. No. Okay. So this and is fairly new territory, very new territory. So I went to, um, a famous triathlon in Florida, St. Anthony's. Mm-hmm. I usually kicked off the season back in the day. And I thought I was going to just at least crush the swim. Right. And then sort of, you know, have fun on the bike and the run. Well, I was like fourth person out of the water on the swim. And this is an was, ocean swim, your golf side open, swim. Um, this is no ocean side. Oh, your ocean side. Okay. Yeah. And so I was like, what is going on here? This is, this is pretty startling. Like I was still swimming, swimming. So this was in, um, uh, the spring of 96. So I was getting ready for the 96. You're games. Olympic ready. And you're finding yeah. yourself sitting for, well, I wouldn't say Olympic ready, but I was using, um, triathlon and that season to sort of cross train differently. I was like, you know, some running and some strength work and some swimming, uh, along with some open water swimming will only help my fitness. But you're in good shape. I mean, you're, well, yeah. you're, you're an oh, yeah. incredible swimmer at this point. Yeah. But yeah, you come no. forth out of the water. What's the distance, St. Anthony's? What's 1.5K. Our... Okay. So it's a, almost a mile ocean swim. Okay. And I look around at who comes out ahead of me. And it's a, and I know every name. 
One of them was a gold medalist in the 100 backstroke, David Burkoff, who was a great triathlete for a while out of Montana with the Stampede Triathlon Group. Um, and another one was Lars Jorgensen, who won and had the open water swim record at, in Kona until my buddy Jan broke it a couple of years ago. Um, so all NCAA Division I winning swimmers, world record holders, I was like, ah, this is where elephants go to die. Oh, triathlon. right. So when you're washed like, up from the pool, I get it. And so it was this aha moment that I spoke to those guys after. And it was this like fascination for how badly the sport broke me. I did uh, a Gulf Coast half Ironman a couple of weeks later. Um, and that was a, a, it was just completely above my fitness level. Right. A 56 mile bike and a 13.1 mile run. I was in such terrible condition because I didn't fuel right. I didn't eat right. I didn't do all the things. I just so it's used not just fit. breaking you physically. I mean, you're getting broken down physically because you don't have the fitness, but mentally, this has to be oh, pretty challenging. It was awful. It was awful. It was so bad that Dave Scott at the finish line, he was announcing. And he goes, oh, man, let's get this guy a beer. He looks miserable coming in. This is you coming across the line. (laughs) So I was like, all right, gauntlet has been dropped. There's something here for me to figure out. So was it a curiosity moment for you or like, was it something that perpetuated you to want to find out more and do better? Or did you find it like, boy, this is just a real mental struggle. I am hating this. Um, I felt the latter. <laughs> I'm hating this. And this is miserable for about a day after the event. And then I was like, there's something more to this. I absolutely loved being that miserable. So you got curious about that misery. Exactly. That suffering. Yeah. And from that moment on, because I'd only felt it sort of a little bit in the pool, but the pool has always been such a controlled environment for me that it's not suffering. You know, it's temporary. You know, this is part of the process. You've wrapped your mind around this experience of pain and fatigue so much over the years that it's, it's, it's not something you really are aware of. It's just part of the training process. But then this was completely new. Well, you're so going minutes up. to hours. I mean, you're exactly. you're taking minutes of suffering into hours. And especially you're jumping Correct. into a half Ironman distance, which people weren't really doing back in the 90s. There were not no. very many of those events out there. No, that was still a Kona qualifier. And you could just show up at Wildflower and, you know, mm-hmm. get a Kona slot and stuff like that. So I right away said, you know what? If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this dive in fully signed up for Ironman Canada. Well, are you like working at this time? I mean, you've, are, you've graduated I from am. college. Are you working? Are you, what's your personal life? Like, is it just about sports? Where are you at? <laughs> I was a grad assistant at American university in DC. I was a grad assistant after 92. I graduated in 93. So 94, 95 and into 96, I was a grad assistant coach at American getting my MBA in international finance. And then after the games, I moved to New York to work as a currency trader in New York. I was one of the last classes at the famed Solomon um, house, but right before they were bought by Smith Barney. So then they turned into Solomon Smith Barney. And then the entire Euro came into play and the 
currency market and all its arbitrage and everything we were taught is somewhat changing into computers right. and so forth. So it was a different class, but for the first 18 months in New York, I worked from 11 p.m. at night until eight in the morning. Oh my God. I worked for Asian market hours. Yeah, yeah, you were working. Yeah, that's where they put the kids. Wow. But it worked perfectly for me. It kept me out of trouble. I was able to keep swimming. Um, you know, I didn't even own an apartment or rent an apartment. I just rented a room in an apartment with a bunch of buddies because I was working night hours and slept during the day. So yeah. I would sleep in somebody's bed. You had <laughs> a, you day. had that house to yourself basically because oh, you were off, off hours. Yeah, it's completely upside down. But I was able to train. I was able to do my thing. I was able to then eventually also do some triathlons and so forth. So yeah, that's where I was. But I, and this is where the first, what I call now the whisper, the first sort of voices came up in my life. And I quickly figured out that this finance track was not aligning with my values and principles. And the reason I could say that so clearly is because in this line of work and, and it's similar in a lot of lines of finance, especially, is you can see your boss and your boss's boss and your boss's boss's boss, and you see a direct line into your future. You know where you're going, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so I could see the money I'd be making, which was would have been nice, um, but also just sort of the life, New Jersey, Upper Saddle River, car service in the city, continue to do the finance thing. Like, and I was like, yeah, I'm off. I, I'm, I just, I'm off balance with it. It was out of integrity or out of alignment. It was something. And so I went in and quit literally 18, 19 months in, and they couldn't believe it because I had a knack for it just growing up in Europe and understanding European currencies and geopolitical situations as a currency trader. Like I look at those guys now, currently with the war in Ukraine and so forth, there's people making so much money, right? But, but that just wasn't what you wanted to do. You just didn't no, want to be there. I didn't want to be there. So I packed up my things, moved to Annapolis, Maryland, where with a buddy of mine who was a landscaper. And I just worked with him for six months trying to figure out my life. Well, you know, and I, I appreciate that so much because I feel a lot of my own story in that where you just have those moments, like you called it the whisper, where you get mm -hmm. that that nudge from the universe, if you will, that it's like, do you want to be here? Like, is this what you want to do? And yeah. I mean, I feel so fortunate that I've been able to follow those whispers, because imagine if you didn't. I mean, what would your yeah. life, you, you know what your life would look like. Yeah, well, I would also be a completely different person as a human, right? I'm, I, mm -hmm. I turned into who I am because I got away from the lifestyle that wasn't serving me. Also, from a um, yeah character perspective, I was impatient, angry, loud, um, cocky, full of myself, um, all those things, and then some. It's it's just interesting, and to know you now, and to hear you now, and and everyone always has the opposite experience with mm. you. You're the mellow guy. You're the, yeah. you're the guy who's yeah. soft-spoken and just really helping everybody be mm. settled and be peaceful. Mm. So what, what a <laughs> difference that is. So after six months in Annapolis, you're, you know, doing lawns, you're mowing lawns, blowing leaves there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pretty zen if you think about it. <laughs> but Annapolis is beautiful. You're right there oh, on the great. Chesapeake Bay. Great. I mean, yeah. if you're going to find yourself. And we, 
we had a house on the bay. So we would jet ski and wave run in the afternoon and I had a dog and it was the whole thing. I was like, but this was very temporary. Even my, my college buddy knew it was temporary that I was going to be working from packed up a U-Haul truck threw my motorcycle in the back, my dogs in the back, you know, one of those doors that open between the back of right. the U-Haul. Yep. Yep. Got on 50 in Annapolis, Maryland and drove cross country on one road and ended up in Sacramento slash San Francisco. Wow. I flipped, I flipped a coin in 90, late 97, early, yeah, early 98 to say Atlanta or the Bay Area. Am I going and south or am I going west? Yeah. So I was like, oh, you know, Atlanta would be fun. I can figure that out. Um, but tails won. And I drove cross country to uh, the Bay Area. What and was waiting for you there? Was there anything or were you just lying by the seat nothing, of your pants? Nothing. I had a few friends there who said, yeah, you can work for us for a little bit, but no real plans. And I've been here ever since. I've not budged from literally the same county and within the same four towns. And are you still competing? Are you still exploring triathlon here? This is now, now we're caught up with my first Ironman. Right. So that summer I'm going to do Ironman Canada, 1990, 1998. So I get to California in like April and I'm like, I got this Ironman thing I got to sort of do. (laughs) And I've not been training, doing anything. Like I'm sort of not coming apart, but I'm sort of just barely keeping it together. How old are you Um, at this point? So 98, I must've been 29, 28. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, so I'm a, I get a bartending job, which I loved bartending work for me. Cause I you use... would be the best bartender. I'm just envisioning <laughs> you as a bartender, talking to people, using your Absolutely. smooth voice. <laughs> yep. And, and those people come in, they were like, ah, you know, and it's sort of like a therapist already. Yeah. I was I already had my calling and yeah. So I did that bartended in the evenings and trained for Ironman Canada during the day. Did you have a coach at that time or were you just training yourself? No. I mean, this is how this, the world all has sort of shrunk over the years, but I met a guy at the Golden Gate Triathlon Club that May. And he was also doing Ironman Canada. And he's like, well, you should join on a couple of rides and stuff like that. We do these big rides. And I did that. It ended up being that like six or seven years later, I was coaching him for Ironman Hawaii. Wow. <laughs> because he became one of my athletes right. and he went on to have a really successful triathlon career. But just, and we put the dots together. I'm like, do I know you from somewhere? He's like, yeah, wow. I'm the guy who introduced you to triathlon back then. That's in the Bay so Area. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Coming full yeah. circle with that relationship. You get to yeah. Ironman Canada and how does I that sleep, go? I rent a minivan. I drive up there. First of all, I haven't, I've driven across the country at this point, but the distances in the West are totally different. It's than very long. East Coast. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'll just drive up. It'll take me a day or are so. Are you going, is it in Calgary? Um, this is in Penticton. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I'm not going that far. I was but like. It's, you know, Penticton um, was the, the original Ironman Canada, okay. right? So, and uh, I drive up and I sleep in my van. I get there in the afternoon, register in the afternoon. You didn't have to be there the two days before. Sure. Then, and please right? tell me like, you had your steel fairing bike with like the shifters uh, on the down tube. I mean, no, but I had those um, those those turn shifters. Okay, the good. old school, right at the end of the arrow. Yeah, got arrow bars or no, the Le Monde arrow bars. Yeah, the turning shifters. And you'll love this. I had one of those six fifty wheels bikes. Beautiful. You know, yeah, I was that guy. Um, but you know what? I was just, I was into it. I was having fun. And uh, 
There it is. Wake up in the morning. First of all, I'm like sleeping in my van and it's four in the morning. I'm like, why are all these people up? It's the start is until 7 a.m. Like I'm literally parked right next to the transition area, right? So there's already Mike Riley starting to come on at like five. And I'm like trying to sleep going, what are you guys, what is this ruckus? (laughs) Why are you guys getting ready so early? (laughs) Exactly. Oh, I need to put my bike. Oh yeah, that's right. I did that last night. And I was like, I had no clue what was going on. So I had some food, you know, a couple of cliff bars or something back then, (laughs) power bars, excuse me. Yeah, power bars which were difficult to have more than one. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. But you sit there and I was sort of, it was like a piece of chewing tobacco. You just (laughs) sit there and chew on it and watch people. Right. I was just so fascinated by this crowd and then uh, jump in on the swim. How many people are competing? uh, This this is about a thousand back then. Okay. So it's a fairly good size event. Oh yeah. 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 It's um, and it's one of the bigger ones. Um, and we, there's a separate, it's a mass start in a separate area for the pros that they have their own sort of swimming area. And I was like, what are we talking about? I'm just going to go over there and swim with them. So I had a great swim. It was fun. Um, and I'm not in that good swim shape at this point anymore, right? Like I'm two years removed and I'm not really swimming that much, but I figured muscle memory, I'll figure it out. I'd spent more time actually biking and running to figure this, this thing out because I was like, I'm not going to worry about the swimming. And so I swim, do well. I'm like top 10 out of the water. And then I have the experience that so many swimmers have in triathlon. I proceed to get passed by about 600 people on the bike. bike. Out of the thousand people that went into the water with you, 600 of them passed you on the bike. The the big problem of being a good swimmer is that now the entire field is just (laughs) planning to pass you. So they're passing me and I'm just like wasting energy, right? On each mm-hmm. one, like, oh, there's another one passing me. We'll cycle harder. You're in your head is, as immediately. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Immediately in my head, I'm not eating. It's Canada in August. It's way too hot. I'm not hydrating properly, but I'm biking my brains out, right? Like I could just feel my head exploding in heat under a helmet, which was probably not, didn't even fit me right. So <laughs> I get to the run. And I'm still doing pretty good. I think it was like a 5.30 bike or 5.35 bike. And so you put that together. I'm like at 6.30 now out of T2, uh, 6.35, excuse me. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm doing the math. Like if I run at 3.30, I could do 10 something. <laughs> Had you run a marathon, uh, a standalone no, at this point? No, no. Okay. No, and no, nothing. So I start off thinking I am all cool. And I'm telling you that heat and the fatigue hit me so hard that the next thing I know, I'm vomiting on the side of the road. <laughs> I can't move. I'm cramping. I'm seizing up. It's misery. I use a porta potty. It's so hot in that porta potty that I almost like I, I can't use the porta potty. I'm like having a fit in there. I come busting out of the porta potty, <laughs> fall trip right out onto the floor. People see me just like, literally fall out of a porta potty, like as if it's burning in there. And the volunteers go, are you okay? Is everything okay? And I'm like, no, I'm like crying, <laughs> literally crying. Going, Things no, are not, not going well. <laughs> completely blew up. I walked for two and a half hours back to the start because <laughs> it's an out and back at this point. Okay. Yeah, right. So I finished that thing, uh, but man, but you another did lesson. finish. You did I finish. Did finish. I think it was like, um, yeah. So I ran like a four twenty or something marathon, and um, the crazy thing is, 
because of the time it was and age group and stuff like that and slots, I was offered a Kona slot on the roll down, not uh, right. I call, yeah, sure. Roll down. And, sure. You know, it was, and the roll down back then, 98, it would go pretty far because yeah. you'd have to be there and so forth. So I was like, yeah, why not? I'll go to Kona. I'm young. I got nothing <laughs> holding me back. Yeah. But the problem was my best friend was getting married on Maui that same weekend. And I knew this and I was like, you know what? I probably can finish Iron Man on Saturday and get on a plane that evening and make it to the, you know, to uh, Kauai was the, uh, was the wedding. Well, first of all, Chris, you're not doing your first Kona and just getting on a plane right, at like right. four in the afternoon. This isn't going like, to work. This isn't going to work. Well, I figured that out about six or eight weeks later. Like my buddy was like, you, you're not going to make the you know, the rehearsal dinner, you're not going to do any, you're in the wedding, dude. Like you can't be doing this, like make up your mind. I was like, all right. So I didn't do my first Kona. Okay. So got yeah. the slot, but didn't, didn't do it. Yeah. But I was hooked. I was completely hooked. So I was through all I of was, the suffering, through all the crying and the falling out of the porta potty. <laughs> yes. I'm hooked. I'm like, I got to figure this thing out. So that's the thing is it's this curiosity again to yeah. how are these other people, you know, why am I getting passed by so many people? Why are they? Because yeah. it is, it's it's a puzzle. Ironman triathlon in general is just a puzzle to figure out. It's a puzzle. And it's a theme that um, knocked me down pretty hard later in life. But it was one of these where it's like, what do you mean I can't do this? Like, I can figure this out. I'm, you know, I have a, as Emily will say, I think highly of myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. We should all have a lot of self-confidence. Yeah, I have a lot of it. And uh, I was like, well, well, if they can do it, I can do it. It was sort of that, right? Right. right. Um, and I was like, well, I've been really good in one thing and I can be really good at this. I just got to work at it and show up with intention and started all these themes that I talk to my athletes about all the time now with regards to mindset and deliberate practice and know what you're doing and figure it out. And when you figure out what doesn't work, cross that off, keep trying new things. Until right. You I mean, this is born it. from your own personal experience. Absolutely. All of this. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And from there, it took off. Like the next year I did Ironman Germany, did like a 947, qualified wow. for Kona again, went to Kona, did a 942 there. And from that moment, uh, triathlon, Ironman triathlon was, I've, I've cracked the code. Were you competing as a pro at this point or are you no, still an amateur? still age group. Okay. Still age group at this point. I didn't um, race pro until uh 2007 or 8 because I won Ironman Coeur Lane and I won my age group no I didn't win my age group in Kona that was the crazy thing um is that I but I was like top 20 okay. overall 22nd excuse me 22nd or 23rd overall in Kona okay fastest US amateur but didn't win my age group <laughs> because you know you'd have a german there because the germans are taking the top <laughs> spots at that point i mean it was 18th overall or the, so yeah so it i didn't go pro until a few of the pros and uh, chris lieto loves this story he always used to just him and i trained together we were good friends for a while um, i mean not that we're not but he moved to the hawaiian islands i i stayed in the barrier 
And he always used to be like, Chris, when are you going to step up? Like, it's all good and nice that you get your like sponsors and stuff like that in the amateur field. But if you're really going to want to test your metal, like he was, he just knew how to push my buttons. Just knew. But why weren't you switching over at that point? Why weren't you fully committing to it? Good question. And that is because A, in the meantime, I had a full-time job, a real job. Um, I was working for Charles Schwab in San Francisco and I was starting a family. Yeah. My youngest was born tomorrow, 16 years ago. Oh, yeah, um, my goodness. Ruby. And I had just gotten married a year before. And it was just sort of like the tone of triathlon and my intensity in it. It was, a, it was like, uh, are we going to, you know, well, start they, a new family and a new life like this? Right. While I'm, you know, fully stretching myself thin. Or am I going to, and again, a theme I talk to a lot of athletes about. Like, what are my priorities and what's my family? How am I going to, who am I going to be? Right. And how am, how am I going to show up for them, for my work, for my future, um, to start a career, to start up, just to get life going. It was, it was a lot of fun um, yeah. as an amateur that could go anywhere in the world. I mean, I got to do everything anybody could have wanted. And you I probably mean, had good sponsors behind you that were helping absolutely. you do that. And all paid for yeah. at all times. But yeah. now yeah, when was... you have a wife and you've got a child and things shift a little bit. They did. But here's the here's the thing I didn't. <laughs> well, how many times in life do we not? I mean, we just kind of <laughs> get ourselves when I took in the, the whisper hole. And I was like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> So you're hearing the whisper saying, Chris, we need to balance this a little bit. And uh, we didn't. But the full of myself, everything goes my way self, the cocky, competitive, stomp your feet and be real loud self took the challenge of being a pro triathlete. And how, and, did, and how did it go? Um, I never really broke through. I got third. Um in Ironman Louisville, I got second in Louisville, I got third in Florida, I mean, but nothing, you know, yeah. nothing where it's a, a enough to really well, justify. Because in triathlon, her. if you don't know triathlon, you've got to be one of those top pros or you're not in the money, you're not in the sponsorships, yeah. you're just, it's just not going to happen. My biggest paycheck was like $5,000 for winning or getting second. Yeah. And you know, I think first then was 10,000. I mean, and you get some sponsor bonuses. So by the time you're really out of it, you just, you walk away from that event, you maybe made $20,000 and you've just been training a year for it. That's not enough to live in the Bay area for sure. <laughs> you know, to bring this back to the B level also in swimming, I was never a champion. I never won a national championship. I never won my state championship. Was that a monkey old. on your back though? Was that something that was, you're watching maybe some of your other friends be successful? Yeah. Is that something that's bothering you? Um, it, it hasn't been, it hasn't been because I was still afforded all the opportunities mm -hmm. and I was around people like my best friends who pulled me along all the time and yeah. challenged me. Yeah. Um, like my best friend, he won a couple of medals for Germany, but he was always like, no, this is how we're going to do it. Nope, this is how it's done. This is who you need to talk to. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to train. And he was, he was that guy. I mean, just, yeah. we were just that close. Yeah. Um, did my last triathlon in uh, 16 or 17. So 42 Ironmans wow. later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the last, uh, the last one I did in order to validate my entry for Ultraman. Mm -hmm. um, and so you need to do an Ironman. And so they needed that. But 
And then the one prior to that, I won my age group in Hawaii, finally, um, <laughs> in 2015. I haven't really done it seriously since 2015. Yeah. And so, you know, once that ended, what, where did your shift go? Where, where did your efforts go after that? In 2014, I took a break from triathlon and did a 50 miler and a hundred miler. And in that hundred mile race, I felt a stress fracture coming on in my foot and I quickly shifted back to triathlon. Mm. But I yeah. loved the ultra running. I loved the time in the woods. I loved the long trail runs. I was introduced to some amazing people. Once again, that's a theme in my life. People who are just like grandfathers and grandmothers in the sport mm -hmm. and who handed down this wisdom to me that has been so life-changing in a lot of ways. There you have it. My Everest, the latest episode of the 29029 podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about 29029 events or read more stories from an incredible community of individuals, you can head over to 29029everesting.com. That's 29029everesting.com. I'm Colleen Rue, the voice of the mountain. Keep climbing. We'll meet you at the next summit.